Father, we feel blessed to know that we gather in your presence this morning. The scripture tells us that where two or three are gathered in your name, that you are there in the midst. And we ask, Lord, that your spirit will take control in each of our hearts and minds and focus our thoughts on the things that you're saying to us today. And Lord, beyond hearing what you're saying, help us to apply the truths in our lives day by day. Pray that we'll be people of faith whose faith is clearly evident to those that we rub shoulders with day by day. And Father, that we will be men and women of prayer, remembering to uphold the kingdom of God and the work that you're doing in prayer. We're so thankful for that opportunity to share in the work which you're doing. Now, Father, we ask that uh, as we study this rather difficult uh, passage in Genesis, that you'll give us the insight we need, the understanding, the application. In Christ's name, amen. Genesis chapter 38. I'd like to begin by reading the first five verses. Genesis 38, beginning at verse 1. And it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he took her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. And she bore still another son and named him Shelah. And it was at Chazib that she bore him. Doesn't sound too earth-shattering as you read through a passage like that. But first of all, we need to remind ourselves of the historical context. We're talking about the two decades or so after Joseph has been sold off down into Egypt. And it's the time during which he is experiencing the things that we'll be reading about in the next few chapters. His, his rise to power, uh, his maturing as a person himself, and walking as a man of faith. But in between, we have this little vignette. And what's interesting, that in that two-decade period, this is the only account that we have of any of the brothers that were left behind. We have no other little story of, of uh, Levi or, or Simeon or Naphtali or, or Benjamin or any of the other brothers. We just have this little story, cha one chapter long, concerning the one brother, Judah. I think we have to be, of course, firmly convinced that this is not because God threw a dart and it landed on that name and so that story is told. It, it obviously has significance or it wouldn't occupy a full chapter in the book of Genesis. Unfortunately, as you read through this, this chapter, you discover it's not a pleasant story at all. The whole chapter is describing these events, therefore, between the time that Joseph was sold, and we read about that in the previous chapter, and the time that Jacob takes his whole family down into Egypt and, and the migration is made from Canaan down to Egypt about 25 years later. Why Judah? Why is he the one that is focused on here? 
What about the other brothers? What about the other ten? We're going to hear a lot about Joseph. In fact, almost the entire rest of the book of Genesis, with the exception of a chapter or two, focuses on this man Joseph. But what about the other brothers? I mean, certainly their lives were going on too. And they get married and they have children and, and this whole family will ultimately move down, as Scripture tells us, 70 strong into the land of Egypt. Well, we can only speculate and assume, uh, I suppose, that the primary reason that Judah is focused on here is because it is through Judah, Judah that the line of Messiah comes. And, and maybe we'll be able to see some factors through this chapter that might help us to be convinced of that point. The first phrase of the first verse tells us that, and it came about at that time. At what time? Well, that, of course, I think refers back to the previous chapter, the time when the brothers came back and reported that, that Joseph was, you know, is this Joseph's garment? And Jacob leaps to the conclusion that his brother, uh, that is his favorite son, has been killed by a wild beast. So it seems that right after this encounter that this chapter begins and the events which we read about unfold. Je jo Judah apparently struck out on his own now. He broke free from the family. Was, what was the reason for that? Did all of the brothers break free? Well, we, we can't validate that or, or invalidate that thought. It doesn't seem so. But Judah seems at this time to have broken free, possibly because he was tired of the moroseness of his father. His father going around in this, this deep depression all the time. And Judah may have just gotten to the point where he couldn't take it anymore. And I think at the same time, he got tired of trying to live the lie in front of his father all the time. Always having to act as if, yes, uh, Joseph was eaten by a wild beast. We don't know what happened to him. When all the time, he knew very well what had happened to him. Because it was his idea that got Joseph sold off into Egypt. I think what happened was that he went to his father and he said, Father, I'd like to move away for a while. Uh, would you give me a seed flock? You know, a few sheep, a few goats, a few whatever, and uh, you know, kind of a down payment on my inheritance, and I'd like to go off and live by myself for a while. And the scripture tells us that he moved to the region of Adullam. Now, Adullam was located about 10 miles as the crow flies to the northwest of Hebron. The region of Adullam is down in the Shephelah. Now, if you think uh, anything of the geography of the Holy Land, basically you have a coastal plain, then you have a region of low hills and valleys, and then you have the, the highlands, whether they be the hi highlands of Ephraim or the highlands of Judea. And the kind of the foothill region, these low hills with intervening valleys, is the region known as the Shephelah. And Adullam was down in there. So you've come down from the heights, you're, you're in these rolling hills, uh, right down not too far from the coastal plain. So we're told in this passage that uh, he moved down to, to Adullam. The first uh, word, or that is the first verse, uh, has a word which is translated there, departed. The Hebrew word there is yarad, which means actually descended. He didn't just depart, but he descended. It's kind of interesting because as you read through Scripture, 
uh, if the words are properly translated, you, you can get a kind of a feeling of what's happening here because instead of just journeying, the word really means go up or go down or something in some way. And, and they didn't speak of up and down as we do. No, I, we normally would say we go up to Seattle and we go down to Los Angeles. By that mean we, we're meaning we go up the map. You know, when you hold the map north at the top, so you're going up the map or you're going down the map. Uh, and of course, that's the way we speak of it. But in these days, they didn't talk about going up north or down south. It was uphill or downhill if there's an up or a down involved. And so what we have here is he is descending. He's descending from the Judean highlands at the high point of, of Hebron. And he is descending down to Adullam. Now, the elevational difference in the two places is about 2,000 feet. So in the 10 miles, he's, he's descending 2,000 feet into the lower uh, reaches of, of Canaan. Now, this is a region that later on will have some significance in the history of Israel because this is the region where David will later hide in a cave called the Cave of Adullam, right in this same region. And we'll also discover that it's only two or three miles from this spot that David slew the giant Goliath. And so this will be uh, yet an important region later on in history. But the story we're reading about here is set in the region of Adullam. And I suppose you could say it's more of a, a story that of, of infamy rather than fame in terms of the events which, um, which transpire. We're told in the passage that he went down to visit his friend Hira. Now, how did he get to know this Canaanite by the name of Hira? How, how did this acquaintance develop? Well, it's very possible, of course, that in his uh, migrations with the various flocks of his father, they came in contact with him because the Septuagint and the Vulgate both translate uh, Hira as a shepherd rather than just as a friend or as his shepherd. And so it's, it's very probable that Hira was a man who had herds too and therefore there had been contact in prior time uh, between these two and, and Judah had taken a liking to Hira. And so now he's, he's saying, I, I want to leave, where shall I go? Well, I know this guy down here, so let's go down there. At least I'll have somebody that I know in the area. And so he migrates down to Adullam to be with his friend Hira. Now, the Hebrew word which is translated visited is actually a word which means to spread out one's tent. In those days, when you spread out one, your, your tent, you were planning to stay a while. Uh, and so it's, it's an indication that this just wasn't a, a weekend adventure. I'm going to go down and see Hira and come back home on Monday morning. He was going down and he was camping there and he was going to spend some time with Hira. And it turns out he spends a couple of decades here. So it becomes, in effect, his home. Well, while there, carrying out his shepherdly duties, he, spire, he spies a gal. And uh, he takes a shine to her, and Scripture is pretty blunt, as you notice. The Scripture says that uh, in verse 2, Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. It kind of jumps through everything. I, 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 it's most likely there was a marriage. Uh, there may have been some sort of courtship involved, but the Scripture just kind of jumps right uh, to, to what uh, is the ultimate fruit of all this. 
We don't know who she really is. All we know is that she is the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua, which of course makes her a Canaanitess. Why is her name not given to us? If you turn, and we don't need to do this, I'll just mention it. In 1 Chronicles 2.4, 2.3, she is called Bathshua. But that doesn't really tell us anything because in Hebrew the word bath means daughter of. So it's just simply saying the daughter of Shua. So whether here or there, that's all we're told about her, is that she is the daughter of Shua. So all we know is that she's a Canaanitess, which probably tells us that she was committed to the gods of the Canaanites and the ways of the Canaanites. And I think that her name is not given because she was a woman of evil influence upon Judah and upon his family, upon his sons and her sons. Because it's very interesting as we proceed through the chapter that his daughter-in-law is named, but his wife is not. And as you proceed through the chapter to the end, I think the reason for that becomes quite evident. But at this time, you know, at this point in the chapter, you probably, we probably wouldn't understand why. Well, the scripture tells us there that in its seemingly very quick succession, three sons are born. First, Ur, uh, the oldest. The word Ur means watcher. Uh, Anan, which means vigorous. And then Shelah, which means sent, as you send someone. I think as you read this, as we read this uh, passage and, and then on down through the chapter, you'll notice there is a very sad vacuum here. There is no mention of God in in this first portion of the chapter. And there is no mention of Jacob anywhere in this chapter. From the first verse to the last verse, Jacob is never mentioned. Which seems to indicate that Judah had, at least for this time being, cut off all contact with his father. And he did not take his kids up to his father for his father's influence to rub off on him or bring his father down to visit so that his father could have some godly influence upon these sons. There is no indication that he sought his father's blessing upon the marriage. His father probably wouldn't have blessed the marriage since this woman was a Canaanitess and apparently a totally unconverted Canaanitess. So here we have a situation where there is no grandfather influence apparently. And of course, I think most of us know who have done much studying in in modern psychology and sociology, the influence of grandparents is very important on grandchildren, especially if the grandparents are godly. It's a good, positive influence, hopefully. If they're not, of course, it becomes a negative influence. In this case, of course, whatever we think of Jacob's failures, Jacob was a godly man. And his influence couldn't have helped but been beneficial to these boys. But, uh, I'm arguing from silence here, but from the things that, uh, that go on further on, it seems to indicate that Jacob had no influence here in this situation. It becomes quite obvious that these boys become intensely wicked. Now, I use the word intensely, in, uh, intentionally, because how many times in Scripture do you find where God just says, okay, I've had it, zap, and the person's finished. We walk around the world today and we say, why aren't you doing some zapping, Lord? (laughs) 
there are a few people who need to be zapped, it seems to us, from our, our perspective. But uh, even in, in, as you read through the scriptures, there are not really very many whom God, it says, explicitly takes their life. And yet he does so in this chapter. And so I, I think as we uh, consider these boys, we have to think of them as being intensely wicked. I, I think that even in their teen years, they're sold out to the evil one. And I think it's the influence of their mother, who is, who is this Canaanite, uh, certainly uh, worshiping the gods and goddesses of the Canaanites, and then the entire, the entire environment. Judah has sort of sold out here. I think Judah is not bringing his own upbringing to bear on these sons at this time. He's kind of copped out for a while, it seems like. This will change, and it will take another Canaanitis, it seems, to change him. But this looks like the situation anyway. For whatever it's worth, it's kind of interesting that Judah apparently names his first son. But as you read through the passage, it sounds like the wife names the next two. Oh, I say, whatever that might mean. <coughs> but it's also interesting that the birthplace of Ur is not mentioned. The birthplace of Onan is not mentioned. But we're told that Shelah was born in Chazib, which was about two miles to the west of Adolam. Now, that could simply mean that the two older boys were, were born in Adolam and the other one was born at a different place, and so the so it is mentioned. But it's also very pos possible that the birthplace of Shelah is mentioned because he apparently is the only one of the three sons who will have any children because both Ur and Anan die without issue. And so it doesn't really matter if anybody knows where they were born as far as the lineage is concerned. But only maybe for Shelah. Verse 6. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, Go in to your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. And Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So it came about that when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I am afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Not a pretty scene. She read through this passage. Uh, you know, these pictures that we read in Scripture keep reminding me of the fact that God doesn't pussyfoot around. God's not into hedging everything, you know, making you try to figure out what he's after. God tells it as it was or as it is. Now, unlike his father Judah, uh, Jacob, uh, Judah chose a bride for his eldest son, Ur. As soon as he was old enough to marry, that seems to be the implication here. 
which means probably in his, at the end of his teens, maybe when he turned 20, somewhere along in there. Now, we're not told much about this girl. We are told, however, what her name is, and that is significant. Her name is Tamar, which means date palm. Now, there are other Tamars in Scripture, as you remember, but she is the first to be so named. From later events in the chapter, we can discover that she too was a Canaanitess. That, I think, is significant. As soon after his marriage to Tamar, Ur is destroyed by God. And the scripture is, is uh, very explicit about that. It just simply says that he was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord took his life. It doesn't say how the Lord took his life. It doesn't even say specifically why the Lord took his life. It doesn't say he did this and this and this, therefore God snuffed him out. It doesn't say, you know, he's walking along one day and got hit by a thunderbolt or fell off a cliff or was eaten by a cougar or whatever, you know. It, we are not told. He just ceases to live as far as this passage of Scripture is concerned. And we're told that God specifically took his life. Now, as you go through the other passages, this uh, event is referred to four times in Scripture, twice in Genesis, once in Numbers, and once in 1 Chronicles. But none of those passages gives us any further information as to the nature of the wickedness or as to the way God took his life. So obviously, th those things aren't important in terms of the details. I think what we have to consider here is that we had a young man who was totally vile in the eyes of God. It had to be pretty serious for God to act in such a quick and final manner. I, I think that if you, if you take any time, and I'm not suggesting we spend a lot of time doing this, but if you think about the Canaanite society as it existed at that time and even uh, much later in history, uh, it could have been that this young man was totally sold into the lascivious worship of the gods of the Canaanites under the influence of his mother and, and probably of his own family. And the worship of the Canaanite gods and goddesses, Ashtart and Baal especially, and, and all the other various varieties that were attached, uh, involved all kinds of sexual deviation and various other activities, including human sacrifice. And God has never been particularly... Um, long-suffering with that kind of activity. And therefore, I think probably that's the background for the destruction of this young man. Judah becomes very concerned about his lineage. Now notice, Judah is still blind here. Judah is not looking at the situation and saying, oh man, this kid, this kid has gone wrong. And, and God is rightly taking him. Judah is concerned about his lineage. He's thinking, I'm not going to have any grandkids you know, from, from Ur here. Therefore, I better make sure that Anan raises up seed to his brother. Now, that was a common practice, apparently, in that part of the world at that time, that if an elder brother dies without children of his wife, that the next son, if he is not already married, be given to his older brother's wife, and that he, at least through the first pregnancy will give seed to his brother. And that first child that is born would thus be often named for the uh, young man who was dead or the previous husband and certainly would be considered his offspring, although obviously 
genetically, not exactly. This arrangement was later written into Mosaic law. Let me turn to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 25. Now, obviously, we're talking about a time hundreds of years before the Mosaic law was written. It was already a custom. But in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6, we find out that it was actually put into the Mosaic law. When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother, and that his, that his name may not be blotted out from Israel. So although this law had not been yet given by God to his people, it was apparently a part of the practice of the society of that particular day. This is called the law of the leveret marriage. Leveret a meaning uh, coming from the Latin levir, which means brother-in-law. And so you have this particular practice being invoked here at this time. What we discover is that Onan is just as much a young rebel as his brother Ur. He knew that if he obeyed and did what his father wanted him to do, that the son born to Tamar wouldn't be his. It would be his brother's. Now, as you read through this passage, you really get a sense of feeling how much these brothers cared for each other. I think he was under the influence of his pagan mother, of the pagan family that he was associated with through his mother, of the pagan society in which he lived, that Judah was obviously not heavily influencing in a positive way. I think he was antagonistic to his father, and he wanted no part of his father's arrangement for marriage. Maybe the custom and maybe what you want, Dad, but I don't want anything to do with it. He wanted, I think, I'm sure, to pick his own bride and to have one, then to have one that belonged to his brother. I don't want a used wife, he probably thought. But he obeyed, it seemed, on the surface. He wasn't apparently to the point where he was going to totally just reject what his father said and walk out uh, and head off into the wilderness. He seems to obey his father. Remember, it sort of reminds you of the New Testament uh, parable of the, of the one son who said, no, I'm not going to go out and work in the field, but later felt bad about it, worked in the field, and the other son said, yeah, I'm going to go out and do it, and then didn't do it. You know? Which son really obeyed the father? Well, in this situation, he's acting like he's going to obey his father. And so he went into Tamar, and, and they had intercourse. And in the process, as we read there at the crucial moment, he withdrew and he spilled his semen out on the ground because he didn't want to allow Tamar to become pregnant by him and have that child be born in the honor of his brother. I think what this is telling us that he, is he didn't give a rip about his brother. He was totally selfish. And that, of course, usually is one of the characteristics of someone who is, who is totally vile in God's eyes. Just an intense selfishness. Sort of like C.S. Lewis in his screw tape letters points out that, that one of the characteristics of evil is intense selfishness. This, this constant, everything for yourself. You know, like being a whole herd of parasites and all we want to do is suck 
everybody else's juice is dry, you know. And, and that seems to be the situation here. Now, Anand's name is preserved to the 20th century because his particular practice is known as Ananism. And you'll look it up in the dictionary and it's still there. It's also called coitus interruptus. It's a more technical name, I guess. And it's considered by some people to be a method of birth control. But it doesn't take a PhD in human sexuality to know, first of all, that it's very risky. And second of all, it's very unsatisfactory. The scripture tells us that God slew Anan also. So Ur is dead, now Anan is dead. <laughs> and Judah's getting paranoid about this whole situation. I think it's important for us to note that God did not slay Anan only because of this single disobedient act. I mean, we ha we, I, I've heard of some people taking this and, and thus saying that onanism is some kind of a terrible sin, you know, and to do that is to condemn yourself forever to hell, which, of course, is absurd. <coughs> but what he is doing is expressing his rebellion. This is simply a manifestation of his rebellion, of his disobedience to his father, and ultimately, of course, to his father's God. What he was doing was revealing the fact that he despised his father, he despised his brother, he despised Tamar, and he despised his father's God. Total disrespect for everyone. Now, where does God look? When God looks at us, he looks right inside. And he sees who we really are. He doesn't have to look in the outside and say, well, I wonder if this guy's really as bad as he looks. You know, it might be really pretty. God knows. God knows our thoughts before we think them. And so God knew what kind of a person Anan was. And that his heart's attitude was the cause of his destruction. Not this simple act, which just manifested something of his heart's attitude. I think what we are looking at here is a man who, like his brother, was totally reprobate and unredeemable. And as I was thinking about that, the passage that we you know, so often refer to, because I think it gives us a lot of light and understanding why God does what he does sometimes in the first chapter of Romans. first chapter of Romans explains a whole lot of things. It gives us, for example, an understanding of how to answer the question, how can the, how can the heathen who have never heard the word of God be lost? It, this, amongst many scriptures, helps us to understand God's thinking here. And uh, helps us to understand why God's wrath is real. I won't read all of that. I just put down on there the last verses of the chapter because they kind of hone in where it might uh, specifically fit on in here. And verse 28, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, 
without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. It's a tiring list. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So we're not talking about somebody who has accidentally fallen into something or is blindly wandering down a path. We're talking about somebody who knows right well where they stand and do it anyway. And they say to others, come and join me. There's lots of room in hell. Come and join me. And I think we all have noticed that those who are living a reprobate life often like to encourage others to join and to be a part of this reprobate life also because then they don't feel so bad. They don't feel so alone. They don't feel like they're standing before God alone. There's a crowd of us. We can't all be wrong. I don't think God takes life until it's quite evident that that life is irredeemable. That person will not be redeemed. That person will never respond to God no matter what. We can always say, but, but he was so young. What about 40 and 60 or, you know, 50 years later? Maybe then. We don't have to worry about that because God knows all things. And God knows what we would do if we lived to be a thousand years old. So it's no mystery to him. And so if he slays a young man at 20, it's because God knew that young man would never, no matter if he lived for a thousand years, would never turn to God. He had sold his soul, it would seem, to the devil. It's interesting, I think, that the Bible does not really say anything directly about birth control. But it speaks a great deal about deviant sexual behavior. I think it's important for us to be aware of the fact, and I think we are, if we've spent any time considering it, that God created human sexuality for three reasons. And the first reason is, of course, explicitly stated many times through Scripture, and that is procreation. God had said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And God made it easy to do that. And I think in uh, Eve's case, and I think in the case of most of the women in the early years, uh, becoming pregnant was not a problem. You know, in our society today, that, that can be a problem. And there are many couples who have faced that problem. But... Uh, I don't think that was a problem for Eve, or I think for her daughters or granddaughters. Obviously, it became a problem by the time Sarai came along, uh, Sarah, and obviously in Rebecca's case, and so forth, uh, in Rachel's case, and it took divine intervention for that to change. But for much of history, at least before the flood, and I don't think that was, that was a problem. Secondly, I think God gave human sexuality the, act, the actual practice of, of, of human sexual relations, for the purpose of creating oneness, oneness physically, which along, goes along hopefully with a, an emotional and spiritual oneness that is developing between a man and a woman. When, when God said to Adam and Eve that the husband was to leave his, his family and, and become one with his wife, I mean, God was saying a great deal there. And, and he was teaching this, this oneness concept. 
And as we understand that oneness concept, it helps us to understand the oneness concept that we have with God. How can two people become one? Same way that you and I can become one with God himself. We become one in thought. And, and, and you know, we, we joke about it, don't we? About after a couple have been married for so many years, and if it's been a good marriage, you think, boy, they, they almost look like brother and sister. They almost look like twins, you know, after you've seen them for so many years because they've become so like each other. This oneness has caused such an intertwining that, that it's almost like they have one mind in the things that they do. I mean, we know, obviously, that even at, at 70, and you've been married for 50 years, you can still have differences of opinion. But still, the general emotional, spiritual, and even physical association of those two people has, has created a oneness there. And, and that's one of the reasons that God created human sexual activity. And then thirdly, I believe God created human sexual activity of, as a uniquely pleasurable way for a husband and wife to express their love for one another. I mean, if it was no fun, I mean, if it was something that you just hated to do, I mean, how much would it happen? And so obviously, God, I think, created human sexual activity for these three reasons. The scripture is very clear and blunt that any sexual activity outside of marriage is sin. Any. Period. There is no exception. People can't say, but, 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 but. No. Marriage is the framework for it exclusively. That's clear from scripture. And then, it's also clear, I think, that any human sexual activity that is not for the purpose of procreation, that is not for the purpose of creating oneness between a husband and a wife, and is not uh, an expression of, of the pleasure of love between a husband and wife, is deviant behavior. And that's not my opinion. That's not the opinion of some narrow-minded bigot. That's what the Bible says. It's very clear. Now, Today, we run into the modern sophisticates who come along and tell us, oh, such thinking is Victorian. And people have a delight today writing books about the Victorian era in which they, they, they try to point out that these people who seem so prim and proper, really they had evil thoughts and were doing evil things. And here, I'll tell you all about it here. You know, they try to sell this stuff today. Is this 19th century morality? Hardly. It's clear morality from the first century in the New Testament, and it's rooted in the Garden of Eden when God spoke to Adam and Eve. It's morality that's as old as the human race. It wasn't invented by Queen Victoria, even though she was a good example of a person who was committed to one man throughout her life. Today we live in the era of self-exalting sociologists and psychologists and philosophers, and, and I'm just picking a few, I mean all kinds of areas of study, who hail the amoral sexuality as if it were a new discovery that our highly advanced, sophisticated, modern 20th century has come to this new understanding that sexuality is to be expressed in any way you like at any time with anyone or without anyone. 
It's the fruit of the upward evolution of the human race. Oh, it's the fruit, all right, of the devolution of the human race, of the decay, the degradation of the human race, of the fall of the human race. It's, it's going back to the way it was before Noah got on the ark. And God looked at the world and he said, this place is terrible, I'm going to wash it clean. And he put eight people in the ark and he destroyed everybody else because they had evolved so highly and had become so modern. Or you go back to the days when the New Testament was written. What was, Greek, uh, what was Rome like? What was Greece like before the time of the New Testament from which Romans had inherited so much of the culture? What was that like? It was exactly like Romans chapter 1. And you read about the lifestyle of the people of the... No, you can't speak of everybody in Greece and Rome, obviously, but at least of the upper classes especially, it was putrid. And this was considered modern. What happened to those societies? They imploded. Why were they destroyed? Because of their moral failure. The corruption that was manifested. This was not new. The whole idea of being amoral and acting like a bunch of animals is not new. Even though there are those today who would like to say that it's new. About those who say, oh, we've got to be freed from the shackles of this Judeo-Christian morality, which is primitive. It's a voice of ignorance. It's a voice of being, uh, of people who are educated to the point that they think they know it all, when what it really proves is they don't know anything at all. Again, let me turn to that passage which puts it so clearly, I don't think you need a special degree in understanding to be able to get the point of 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. Some have tried to contort and distort this passage, but it's, it's quite clear. And, and it's very interesting. There aren't any loopholes in it. Verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, most of us don't have any problem with that. Right. The unrighteous should not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Now God begins to talk about who, who the unrighteous are. This begins to become meddling in some people's opinion. <clears throat> Do not be deceived, neither fornicators. Now, that's someone who carries out sexual activity outside of the bounds of marriage. Nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate. Now, the, the scripture by that means pervertedly effeminate. Nor homosexuals, point clearly. I mean, adulterers, immorally effeminate homosexuals, I mean, you know, they're all put in the same category here. Nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God, period. That's just it. Now, that doesn't mean somebody who is, has a leaning in that direction, but seeks God's grace to not live that lifestyle. It doesn't mean somebody who has lived that lifestyle but now has come to God and no longer lives that lifestyle because that's what it goes on to say in the next verse. But such were some of you. But you were washed. 
You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God, meaning you no longer live that way. It doesn't mean you're not tempted. It doesn't mean that somebody who, who's committed adultery isn't still tempted sometimes to do that. It doesn't mean somebody who's, who's learned to be an effeminate type of person in a moral way isn't still tempted to do that or that a homosexual isn't still tempted. It simply means you don't live that lifestyle. You don't manifest that activity because you've been changed, been washed, been made clean. Now, we live in a day and age when there are those who are trying to modify all of this and say, well, that's not really what God meant because, you know, God changes with, with time. God's becoming modern. God's getting up to date. God knows, well, that was good then, but now it's got to be different. As long as we're committed to the other partner, it doesn't really matter if we're married, not married, if we're homosexual, if we're effeminate, if we're adulterer, or whatever we are. Those things don't matter as long as we pray to God and talk about Jesus. Be tolerant, yes. If we're not tolerant, we're bigoted. And who wants a bigot? What's very interesting, and this keeps coming up, is the really bigoted people are those who say they're tolerant. Because they're not tolerant of me if I disagree. <laughs> Thus, they're bigoted too, if they consider me bigoted. So, I mean, if everybody just fesses up and says, well, you're a bigot, I'm a bigot, we're all bigots, let's all be bigots together, then that's fine. You know, we can get along maybe. But it really is disgusting when, when people think that they're so educated and so highly sophisticated and understanding that they know what's right and all the rest of us are, are, are living in the medieval world or something. We're still running around like knights in shining armor following the code of chivalry, which really wasn't such a bad code when you think about some of it. I think another important point here is that what happens to Judah here is a clear illustration of another important point that Paul makes in 2 Corinthians. And again, it's a passage you're familiar with, but I think it's important to Bring it up again. The scripture says not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now what the scripture is saying is that we do not go into such a relationship. It's not saying, it is not saying that two people who have formed this relationship, then one of them later becomes a Christian and the other does not, that now you're supposed to say, well, I'm a Christian, he's not, or I'm a Christian, she's not, and the Bible says don't be unequally yoked, so I'm going to divorce this person and go find someone to be equally yoked. No, it doesn't say that. It's talking about a person going into a relationship knowing that that's an unequal yoking. Do not be down, bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship have, has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. You shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Not Paul. 
the Lord Almighty. This is not just talking about marriage. It's talking about other legal contracts also that bind us in an unequal yoking with an unbeliever. I think that would mean a partnership in business, for example, or whatever, which would put us in an unequal thing where our name could be blasphemed because the activity of the other person to whom we're legally bound. But marriage is, of course, one of the most obvious situations here. Judah went into this relationship knowing it was wrong. He followed his eyes, you know. He was like another man who didn't live too far from here uh, at another time by the name of Samson, who just went with his eyes, you know. They drug him everywhere. And, you know, he had no moral strength to stand. Judah knew better. But Judah didn't do what was right. God will be gracious with Judah, and God will use another Canaanitess to, to start putting him on the road, which will make him a very, very interesting person as we get towards the end of the book of Genesis. We will get there, Lord willing. <laughs> the loss of his two oldest sons will not be the end of the price this man pays for his intentional disobedience and his ungodly action. He was afraid, now that he's lost his first two sons, that he would lose his third son, Shelah, and he'd be sonless. So he was afraid. No, was he superstitious? Or was he just afraid that, I mean, what did he do? He seems to associate the death of Ur and the death of Omen with the marriage to Tamar. And it really isn't the marriage to Tamar that is the cause of the death of these two sons. He doesn't seem to associate it, though, with their evil and their rebellion, but rather with her. And so he's afraid to marry his youngest son to her. Although he says to her, go back to your father's house, live there as a widow for a little while, and soon as Shelah's old enough, there'll be another marriage, and this will just be fine. Uh, but he's, in effect, lying through his teeth. Uh, he may have had somewhere in his thought that, that maybe he would do this, but it seems from the way you read the passage, well, let's, let's go back and let me just read it there. Verse 11 then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my, till my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I am afraid that he too will die like his brothers. Well, I mean, now, later, I don't think he's putting a time frame on it here. And so what he's doing is saying, I'll, I'll give you, you know, when he grows up, you can have him, but I don't really think I'm going to do this because he might die too. Now, Ur and Onan were probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 or so when they married Tamar. The gals were usually younger than the guys, so probably the age difference between Shelah and Tamar was not that great. She might have been a little bit older, but probably not a lot older than Shelah. And so I think probably he was in effect saying, go back and be a widow, it'll only be two or three years, and then we'll have another wedding, and we'll get on with this thing. And that leads to another scenario that we'll look at next week in the next uh, passage in this chapter.